0: I think everyone thinks that the future is unknowable and everything is complicated. But actually, I think that there's lots of really exciting opportunities for companies to build new products and services. But the reality is that all really good marketing work um, is a bit like an orchestra.
1: You said that you loathe the word digital. Why do you loathe the word digital? Uh,
0: Because it doesn't really mean anything. And often what it means is different to what people think.
1: Hello and welcome to the season finale of season two of The Ad Today I'm joined by Tom Goodwin. Tom is a consultant, thought leader, TV presenter, author, all-around interesting and good person. And Tom's thoughts on the world are fascinating. He has over a million followers across social media and I'm sure many of you have seen his thoughts pop up in your LinkedIn. Today we're going to be talking about some of the things that have happened in the past year, and some predictions for next year. I've been fortunate enough to work with Tom before on a client engagement, and his views are so well-articulated and thought through, while sometimes being a bit controversial, but I know you'll really enjoy this episode, and it's a really fantastic way to end. It's been a great season two of The AdPod. Anyway, without further ado, I hope you enjoy the season finale of The AdPod. Hey Tom, welcome to the AdPod. How are you doing? I'm good. Thanks for having me on, Wayne. No, thank you for coming. I really appreciate it. This is the season finale of season <laughs> two. So I'm uh, looking forward to sort of reflecting on the past year and sort of thinking about what happens, what what, what might happen next year. Um, and a big we... uh,
0: plot twist to get people to join for the next season. <laughs> so,
1: oh, there's a massive one coming right at the end. So stay <laughs> all the way through to it and you'll find out what it is. Um, <laughs> and before we get into kind of ourselves, sort of, those sort of reflecting and predicting, um, for the listeners, would you mind just kind of introducing yourself, your about your experience and what you do now?
0: Yeah, um, so I'm Tom Goodwin. I've spent most of my life working in advertising-ish type stuff. Um, Started out working client-side, which people don't really expect. Uh, More in a sales role than working my way through lots of different types of advertising agencies. Uh, Really starting to get interested in technology uh, and the future and what technology would mean for the way that we live our lives and for business Um, And now I sort of write books, I present TV shows, and I work with companies to help them understand the changing world um, and to change for it. I think everyone thinks that, um, you know, the, the future is unknowable and everything is complicated. But actually, I think that there's lots of really exciting opportunities for companies to build new products and services. So I advise them on how to do that.
1: Awesome, awesome. Well, looking forward to getting into the conversation. And uh, I guess a good place to start is because the podcast is called The Ad Pod. Maybe we start sort of around advertising and I know That's your good. experience is super relevant. Um, and I guess it's quite interesting advertising in general because um, the kind of like advertising industry gets impacted so much by what happens from like a macroeconomic factor. Um, so, you know, consumer spending, how that impacts companies, how that impacts the way they then spend their money to advertise. Um, They're also the way we advertise, like content has changed from print to TV to digital, etc. I guess, you know, thinking a bit more immediately in the past year or so, like, what do you think has been the biggest thing that's impacting the ad industry? I think there are
0: two things, and obviously your question asked for one, so I probably won't talk about one much, um, and it's also a bit boring, but I think something we should be aware of is um, no one really knows how to do hybrid work, Um, and I think a lot of people are really struggling. I think um, a lot of bosses don't know how to get people in. A lot of young people are not learning, and they don't realise they're not learning. Um, So I think that's a huge thing, but perhaps that's a conversation for another day or for... Um other people to talk about. Um, so more specifically towards the advertising industry. Um, I think there's almost two tribes in our world. Um, there are people who've grown up in the world of sort of brand marketing and traditional marketing. Um, and they've always sort of worshipped uh, the altar of brand. Um, and they've always, you know, over time they got more used to metrics and they've got more used to ROI. But at their very heart, they're a sort of culture rooted in the, the power of a great idea and how great ideas can change all the mathematics to make amazing things possible. And then there's also this sort of growing tribe of people that have grown up in a digital age, and they sort of look at spreadsheets, and they look at CAC, and they look at LTV, um, and they sort of worship at the altar of the the Google, uh, the sort of Excel spreadsheet. And for them, marketing is all about optimization. It's all about pulling levers. Um, And I think we're really facing this sort of big battle between those two tribes, because I don't think they really talk to each other. Um, And I think there's a massive move towards short-termism right now. A lot of the clients that I talk to, they feel a lot of pressure um, to bring to life sort of real-time results and to be able to show, like, clearer ROI. And therefore, I think we're moving closer and closer and closer to the sort of point of purchase. And we're seeing the sort of growth of channels like Amazon um or sort of walmart or or perhaps even tesco being used as a sort of uh, advertising environment and i don't think it's working that well i just think it looks good on a spreadsheet because you capture the success um of a lot of people who are going to buy anyway um but i think that's the sort of the biggest thing this sort of tension between brand and performance this tension between um traditional and digital and while these conversations are not in any way new i think they're really coming to a head right now
1: yeah i would definitely echo that And, and we're seeing it from our sort of um advertisers you know they're looking at how do they cut budgets um without necessarily losing share of wallet or share of mind yeah um, it's, de- it's definitely challenging and i don't know like i guess the further that like how do you how does a brand approach the balancing of the brand and long term but a bit more longer term versus this short short term i need to get quick sales or quick purchases or whatever it that's might a be. very good
0: question um I mean, I think it's Ritson that came up with the most basic of analogies, which actually works incredibly well. And that's to think about the sort of apple farming business. You know, you're either watering the trees to grow the apples or you're picking the apples. Um, obviously, if you stop watering, you can probably still carry on picking apples for a while. Um, and then the tree dies and you are screws. Um, I think there's an enormous temptation to harvest rather than to grow for the future. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously depends, like um, I don't think we're comfortable with this idea that everything in marketing depends on your precise circumstances, Um, but it really does. Um, But generally speaking, um, we just have to accept that they're two different cultures and you can't really show that you're building the brand with any um, real time or precise or um, sort of rational metrics. You just have to sort of believe you are. Um, So the skill really is for clients to do both. But also to accept that they're both so different. You can't, you know, you can bring them together in a PowerPoint and explain what you're doing, but you can't bring them together in an Excel spreadsheet because they are just measured in very different ways. Um, And I think we need a lot more trust um, across the industry in the fact that we may know what we're doing, even though we can't prove to others that we do.
1: Yeah. And you mentioned there, like, sort of two different types of cultures almost. And yeah. quite quite often those cultures are sort of set or sort of top down, whether it's a bit more CFO led or maybe it's a bit more CMO led. Again, those cultures to sort of work together because they're very different people usually who just tend to think about the world differently as well. And it's quite hard to get them to, to come together. But it is.
0: I mean, I think the first stage is to accept that they are different. I think um I don't think we have done a good job of realizing how different they are, you know, and I think we sort of expect to bring people in the same room. Um, and to use some of the same language, and then, then people will play nicely with each other, and they'll understand each other. And the more I sort of learn about this, the more I realize how radically different it is. I mean, I, I've mainly come up on the brand side, and the act of buying um, some ads on LinkedIn and on uh, sort of Facebook for a book that I wrote, I, I suddenly realized there was a pretty different way to see advertising, where all you were doing is, you know, looking at um, auctions and you were looking at different ratios. Um, And it sort of blew my mind really how there was a whole world of advertising that I wasn't really aware of the scale of. Um, And you see lots of threads on LinkedIn where people sort of say really what I think of as being quite stupid things, like, you know, here are ways to growth hack your, you know, sneaker brand to a million dollars and at no point does it talk about brand or or how good the sneakers are. Um, And it's sort of interesting. And the idea of sort of knowing what you don't know, I think, is going to be a really huge part of that.
1: Yeah, you know, I I think about this so much because a lot of my my entire career has been in digital media, and now the the two are kind of converging through TV and digital outdoor. And I've always sort of thought that well, just because I have the sort of digital expertise and I understand like the numbers and spreadsheets. I also really appreciate the value of people who are a bit more strategic and understand the brand. And, and it's just interesting because sometimes people go, go into conversations not expecting that, like you, it's almost like the person on the other side who called brand marketer, you almost sort of think, well, they're not going to come at this with an open mind because their job is brand marketing. Um, and I I, think, I, yeah, I
0: mean, in, in all fairness, I think um, coming from the brand side, Um, we have had a pretty bad attitude towards this through most of advertising history. You know, like we, we sort of sat in champagne lunches and we flew around first class and we had taxis that would wait for us with the meter on. Um, And then all of a sudden the world of of digital media um, and real time provability and sort of attribution, it sort of came along and I think our way of dealing with it was to think that we were in this sort of movie business and that, you know, we were too big for this stuff. And I think there are still some remnants of that sort of attitude um, where there is this sense that somehow you know, selling stuff is a bit dirty and you know, digital ads are a bit sort of cheap. So I, I actually think, think it's kind of on us. Um, and we should be aware of how incredibly important this is. I mean, re- realistically, um, we need to get everyone in the room together and we need to get everyone to appreciate the, the skill sets and the vantage points of the other side with enormous amounts of respect. And it's only really when you sort of combine those two ways of thinking about it that you can actually really make the magic happen. But I I think we undermine how much work there is to be done in making that happen.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I'd say with sort of my digital hat on, you know, I've sat in rooms talking about log level data and attributions (laughs) and all these sorts of things. You're like, there's a brand at the other side of (laughs) all this data that the consumer sees. And it's like, yeah, I, I would say I think a good thing to think about going into next year is definitely like bringing those people together culturally and solving for you know, trying to balance the short and long term. So I think that's a good way to kick off this, this podcast. And um, I've I actually, so I've been following your posts for a while. And that, you know, One of the things I see that you talk about quite a lot is, so this concept of value and how people think about value generated, how people monetize value, and wanted to sort of pick your brains on that, really, because I actually think it's super underappreciated in advertising. And so so I was thinking sort of specifically more creative fields. You know, if you come up with the best creative idea, but it takes you 30 minutes versus someone who's working a 38-hour week and doing it, you know, all around the clock, the value isn't time. The value is, you know, very very different. And I think brands and agencies and media owners trying to figure out ways to sort of pay for that value appropriately is difficult. Um, so I'd love to get your thoughts on, you know, value creation and how you sort of reward it, which isn't back to something such as minutes and hours.
0: Yeah, I mean, all of these conversations always sound a bit like the the sort of um, the retort about capitalism or democracy that it's not perfect, but it's the it's the sort of least bad way. And I think most agencies have got to the point where they realise that actually, sort of time and materials probably is massively imperfect and incentivizes all sorts of strange behavior, um, but probably is the least worst way. Um, The problem is that everything really, when you go through it has huge problems. Um, And it's quite interesting to look at how other industries with creativity uh, manage this as well, because they will do it differently, but, but equally badly. You know, like if you're an architect, you probably pay a project fee based on the cost of the job um which actually is linked much more not to how long it takes or how good the work is but much more about the materials that the client chooses so you know so they end up you know specking very expensive kitchens because they get paid more and they don't have to do any more work you know you look at being an author you know you get paid either you know well mainly you get paid sort of as a percent of the sales which you can prove it down to you because you wrote the book Um, You know, a a long movie doesn't cost more to watch. Um, An expensively made movie doesn't cost more to buy a ticket for. So I think we have to kind of accept that there are various different things we can try. And they all don't work for slightly different reasons. Um, The obvious one, and you'd have thought in the world of big data and AI, this would be possible. The obvious one is to have a sort of share of success. So sort of payment based on results. but the reality is that all really good marketing work um, is a bit like an orchestra, um, where there's lots of different instruments playing together. You know, and some of it will be the media, some of it will be the um, PR, some of it will be the product design, some of it will be the product specifications, some will be the PR, the you know placement, and so on. Um, and you can't listen to a piece of music and say, "Wow, you know, the drum really made this piece good," or you know, the violin, you know, should get all of the sales. So we can't sort of really separate out what succeeds. Um, So I think in a way what we need to do, and this is really against the whole way the industry is going, um, we need to understand that our job is to be trusted advisors. And our job is to sort of live in the brands. And our job is to employ a range of people who make amazing things happen for that brand. Um, And we need to have sort of long term relationships where we are paid to be the sort of stewards almost of the brand. And that probably means moving towards things like um, a retainer based system that's articulated through a vague scope of work, but based on sort of mutual trust where, you know, the client can change the deliverables, but not by that much. And where strategy is paid for, even though you might not be able to see it um i think that's probably the way forward but that's almost the antithesis of everything the industry is going towards um and then on top of that there can be an element which is um result based um or there's there can just be a sense that if if the work doesn't appear to be working you know you can just get fired quite quickly
1: yeah and the, i think it i think you're right it starts with trust and if if you are working with someone who's the other side who you trust to add value in a, way and you pay them appropriately it's a much easier conversation and I say that as someone you know, who's run a consultancy for the past six years and some of our statements of work are like 10 pages and it's a small <laughs> fee others is remarkably like uh softer and much higher fees and sometimes that comes down to like the company culture of who you're working with but there's also definitely a a case of you know trust like if you trust that we can do this and you trust that we trust you that you pay as well and it's, and it goes goes well. But oftentimes that's easier said than done. And yeah, it's definitely a pet peeve because often it's people think about hourly rates. And it's like, well, not every hour that I work is equal and the value that I create within that hour is very different depending on what I'm doing. And so yeah, I think that the at the sort of the time-based model is just um as you say, least least path of resistance. But actually if you put trust at the heart of the engagement and that you're all working towards similar goals, I think you can get the smarter ways to reward both parties.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a very difficult industry in this way. Um, And one thing which we're always quite uncomfortable talking about, um, especially quite sort of experienced talent. um, We have people who are absolutely incredible at their jobs um, and they can basically save um 1000 hours of work that's going in the wrong direction um, and they can come up with a strategy or an idea that can lead to you know millions of dollars of value being created um, but we'd never really be comfortable paying these these people um a multiple of other people who are simply average even though they create that um so i think as a whole our industry needs to have quite big conversations really about what is the value that we're actually adding you know what is um what is the sort of bread and butter? What is the sort of maintenance and what is the, the growth? Um, and we need to get better at employing people who are remarkable but really expensive um, and then actually realising that we don't need that much of their time. Um, and we need to sort of try and strip out quite a lot of the, the averageness um, and the stuff that's quite sort of bureaucratic. Um, you know, in, in a way, these things are quite counter to the culture at the moment where we tend to be in quite an operational role um but we need to you know we, we uh, there's a sort of adage in consulting about you know a person that sort of fixes a massive machine and they get a bill for sort of a million dollars and the invoice says you know one minute of my time you know one dollar you know 999,999 dollars uh for sort of knowing you know how to use my time or knowing where to sort of tap and I think um we have to be a little bit more comfortable with that sort of feeling in a way
1: yeah yeah definitely definitely and You mentioned there around um, because I saw you write about this recently around the idea of someone working 100% of their career or their time at one job when actually, you know, there may be there is multiple companies in different sectors and fields they could be working with. Um, I'd love to get you just a bit more thought on that. So how do you sort of see people structuring their time and maybe employment contracts and things might change in future?
0: Two interesting things here, I think. Uh, one is um, I- I'm staggered at how much we want identical experience. Um, you know, if I was a marketer for a car brand, um, I don't want someone that's worked on cars their life, you know, especially as the car industry is changing. I want someone that's worked in, um, you know, DTC brand, because increasingly cars are becoming DTC. Um, I want someone that's worked, you know, on a theatre company who sort of knows how to make events that get people really excited. Um, I want people that have got broad interests. Um, You know, CPG is much, much more interesting when you come to the world from finance and you ask sort of stupid questions that happen to be brilliant. Um, So we really need to get better. One at having um, sort of different people. Working on different accounts, and then two having different people at the same time working on accounts. You know, we can have someone who's come from a, you know, very expensive education with someone that's come from a state education. Um, we should have people that have spent most of their life working um, on mathematical type things, working on really emotional type things with, with other people at the same time. We really need to sort of smash together those sort of different vantage points at the same time. Um, and I think the the second thing. One of the sort of most pretentious but interesting analogies I think there are is to to some advertising jobs um, is the idea of almost being like a really sort of crap decathlete. You you would never sort of think your job as a decathlete is to go and perform at a games, um, you know, nine times a year. You know, you think your job as a decathlete is to work out in the gym every day, um, to be incredibly strong, to have a coach, to try different tactics, to get better, to focus on your nutrition. I think in a way, for some people in advertising agency, you know we should think of our, our job as being primarily to be well-read, um, to know interesting people, to read interesting books. And then actually, when we apply that, that, that sort of talent is a bit more like a competition for a decathlete, where you suddenly splurge all this stuff out. And I think um, companies are really missing a trick by not realizing how helpful people can be for a really short amount of time. Um, you know if you were a sort of freelance decathlete to to take the analogy too far um, you know those people that see you at the games basically get all of the rewards for all of the work that you did that you didn't even charge for Um, so I think this idea of um, I guess they're called fractional roles or you know freelance roles I think agencies can make a much 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 greater um, advantage by using that in a much more sort of bold and ambitious way
1: yeah and I also think for the individuals as well you know like oftentimes it's seen as taking sort of a safety route to go work at one company and do the 37 and a half hours a week whatever it is <laughs> as yes. opposed to and I, I remember when I first started um consulting six and a half years ago and you're just out there you know you do a half day in this part of London half day here one day here and uh, you're sort of stretching your your experience and your intelligence as far as you can and it's exhilarating like it it's really is. it's it's incredibly enjoyable but there's also the challenge of well i've got to find a way to generate the work deliver the work build the work as, as well and i think that could be off-putting for some people but i i would really encourage i know we're coming into like you know, some difficult times with the economy but i definitely think that the the, the so some individuals who make freelancing or sort of the gig economy work really well for themselves and they're just not willing to take the, the jump. And I, think, and I also think on the other side, companies should be more open to it as well.
0: Yeah, I mean, um, there's definitely a vulnerability in doing it. Um, and the, the way to navigate it is to make sure it's not a jump, um, you know, to make sure that it's a, a smoother transition as you can possibly do. Um, and we should be aware, if you're really good, there's never been an easier time to show the world how good you are. Um, you know, if you do an amazing presentation about something um, and stick it on SlideShare or LinkedIn or whatever, if it's really good, it will be seen by lots of people, and they will be impressed, and they will call you. Um, in many ways, it's never been a more fair
1: environment to get hired. Um, just taking it one sort of slight step forward, just on on businesses really, because um, the listeners obviously will have people who work for themselves versus people you know, who who listen work for companies of. 10,000 plus people. And I find the differences in the business size so interesting. Being a small business <laughs> ourselves versus going to our clients, we've got like a marketing department of like 4,000 people. Um, and there's sort of the pros and cons. And I've seen you talk about this before as well, Tom, around like there's sort of, you know, there's there's advantages and disadvantages, disadvantages to both. I'd love to get your thoughts on that. So, what you sort of see <laughs> is like from a small business perspective, like what are the pros and cons, but also big businesses?
0: Yeah, I mean, this could be a very long answer. So I'll try and sort of make it a little bit short. Um I mean, the first thing to acknowledge, like you said, is companies are amazingly different. I mean, when you look for another job, you walk into buildings and you think, wow, you know, the the title of the emails, you know, may be different and the signature may be different. Um, but a lot of the work appears to be quite similar. But the way it all comes about is remarkably different. I mean, there are agencies that you know, focus massively on strategy. There are others that focus massively on technology. It's, it's remarkable how different places are. Um, generally speaking, most things about big agencies are kind of, um, you know, they're kind of cliched. Like they do tend to be more bureaucratic. Um, they do tend to be a safer pair of hands to buy if you're a client, you know, because you tend to be less likely to get fired if Ogilvy make a campaign and it fails versus some sort of guy or, or woman in a in a sort of garage in, um you know, Blackheath or something. Um, I think it's it's hard to be really brilliant in a big place. I think in a way, everything gets sort of averaged down quite a lot. Um, and I think a lot of the reason why our clients buy big agencies are actually not particularly true. You know, we always used to sort of talk about proprietary processes that we'd have or how we have access to brilliant people across the world and we bring them together in different ways. And, you know, we talk about how, you know, the scale of our buying means that we get access to special products and services and people. Um, Increasingly, those advantages are not really that true. Um, Increasingly, you know, you you could almost go to the other end of the scale and um, an agency that's got very few people that, actually retain sort of free answers who are brilliant um, just for a few hours here and there, a bit like we were talking about before. Those are probably the environments where you're most likely to get the best work from. Um, But we have to be respectful that the clients choose agencies for different reasons. Um, You know, sometimes they might choose an agency because they want to come into London and, you know, feel alive again. Sometimes they might choose an agency because they're really scary people that will, um, you know, test them and stretch them. Um, you know, so people have to make the decision that's appropriate for them.
1: I think, I think the thing that I try and particularly like the brands that we work with is just, just be be open minded around where a solution can come from, and it, that might not be the agency that's retained. It might be someone else, or it could be someone you hire in on a project. It's, I think now you've never had more options to access thought leadership and opinion um, and experience than before, and so keeping those doors open, I think is uh, so important for all companies, to be honest. I mean, you never know where the next amazing idea or opportunity can come from.
0: Yeah, no, for sure. And there's two things, you know, in a way there's this quality of the talent but then it's how it's orchestrated. And I think um, in a way how it's orchestrated sometimes can be even more important. You know, like if you're employing a great thinker you need to give them time to think. And if people don't sort of protect that time um, it's very hard for them.
1: Yeah for sure for sure maybe for season three we'll build a jingle for this <laughs> but, for this next section but you're obviously well recognized as being a thought leader and um putting your opinions out there on on different social media platforms and love to have this section to go to explain what you mean where <laughs> i will call out a couple of your quotes and just want to understand a bit more behind it if you don't mind um and the, and the first one is um You said that you loathe the word digital. Why do you loathe the word digital?
0: Uh, Because it doesn't really mean anything. And often what it means is different to what people think. Um, It it sounds a bit tripe. It's a bit like saying electrical media. You know, like the TV is electrical, the radio is electrical, the newspaper is not. Um, It's not very helpful. Um, And I can see why we use it, because every time something's new, you know, we use a word. So when a, a mobile phone is new, we call it the mobile phone, and then we just call it the phone. Um, And I think we've now had digital for long enough that we should shut up about it. Like it's not really digital banking. It's just paying someone money. Um, It's not really online dating. It's just um, dating in 2022. It's not stream TV. Um, And I think when we use the word digital, we quite often make assumptions about what it means. So if it's stream TV, we assume that we should target ads really tightly. Um, You know, if it's digital media, we assume that we should be measuring everything that happens um so i think we would be better off figuring out what's a more helpful word you know maybe we mean it's um premium video and it just happens to come through the internet maybe we mean um it's an environment where we've got lots of data to target people you know so we can call it precision advertising but i think the word digital is just um utterly pointless and meaningless these days
1: yeah that uh, i appreciate that and i think it's um everyone likes to put things into boxes because the world is so chaotic and there's so much going on. It's like, Oh, I can define it and put it over here. But actually, and this comes from someone who's worked in programmatic most of his career where everyone defines that so differently. I think maybe <laughs> actually just uh, don't be too bold by the definition, just sort of think to what, you know, what is relevant? What does it actually do for you? Um, but you see I, see, I see it on media brands, a particular, particularly brands like, <laughs> my definition of connected tv is different this this is like wow this is uh, <laughs> you might be overthinking this one to be honest <laughs> um the next one the next explain what you mean in search jingle is um the metaverse is a naive joke it's hype and expectations are about to crumble but the idea of a world where the internet and reality are one is key what did you mean by that
0: yeah it's kind of building on the point before really, which is um, digital is such a sort of omnipresent thing that it's worth just thinking about it as, as a sort of background in a way. Um, you see these ridiculous stats like, you know, 75% of purchase decisions are informed by digital. Um, I have absolutely no idea what that means, but I know it's a really stupid way to think about it. Um, you know, we talk about sort of purchase funnels where people go online and then offline. Again, it's, um, we live in a reality where everything is sort of pulled through. Um, and what the internet has done is it meant, it's meant that stores can sell an infinite number of things because they don't have to sort of keep them in a store. Um, the internet means that we can open up our phone and take a picture of something and buy it. So it means the entire world has become a catalog. Um, and we'd be much better off thinking about new sort of consumer flows Um, where our sort of journey goes from everything from online environments, which is sort of rendered out in real time using advanced APIs um, and sort of cocoon ourselves around that, um, all the way to sort of new purchases where you're using a QR code on an item that you bought to buy other things that go alongside it. And I think um, it's more helpful to think about the world as being this sort of enhanced sort of tapestry where the internet provides the ultimate in sort of the bridges between different environments um and actually that's a much more exciting canvas to work with than the metaverse you know think about reality and how you can sell more things or make it easier to buy things um that's the sort of canvas that
1: we should work with yeah that's great yeah i think it's actually similar to how people like to put things in boxes there's always a it has to be entirely this or entirely that. It has to be entirely in the metaverse or entirely yeah. in person. It's like actually the blending of these things really is where you know, as you were saying, it's, it's likely to net out. It's sort of different ways to think about that. Um, the next one in the explain what you mean section is. Um, I, I found this one really interesting, like super interesting because it's very topical. Um, but you said, "I get the feeling we're going about sustainability wrong." It seems to me that it's largely being solved for in a superficial way it's being driven by optics and reputation not from a deep-seated belief in doing the right thing can you elaborate
0: um i think a couple of things i mean people are doing this very quickly and that's great but i think often it's it's a sort of reactionary thing um and it's based on the idea that we should sort of make amends for our sins Um, I think it's better to sort of take a step back and realize that it's not the sort of morally right thing to do. It's just a very smart thing to do, um, you know, for the classic three P's of people, planet and profit. Um, So I think we need to sort of have a much more honest approach towards it. And, um, you know, one based in sort of authenticity and genuinely trying to do the right thing rather than to react and not be vulnerable. Um, the, the, second thing advertising, um, it's, it's remarkable. It's got amazing people in it. Like we really do have some of the best and most interesting brains on the planet. And then almost all the time, but a 99.9999% of our output, um, is turned into advertising. Um, we never really change the product or the price or the promotion that much. Um, and therefore we tend to solve every problem with advertising. Um, you see this most sort of, um, Sadly, with something like gun control, you know, every time there'll be some horrendous mass shooting in America, there'll always be people in advertising that come together to sort of make ads that say guns are bad or no one should have a gun. Or, you know, if you're a gun, you're a loser. Um, That's an entirely stupid way to solve the problem. Um, Most problems in life are not going to be solved with advertising. They're going to be solved with, with products or different incentives or regulation. Um, And I think it would be better if we could focus our enormous brilliance on helping brands um, create products and services or processes um, that actually go to the core of their business and make them more sustainable. And that doesn't mean buying sort of carbon credits and hoping no one notices. Um, It means rethinking the role of that product. So, you know, if you if you're selling cars, then, um, you know, maybe there's a move towards sharing cars. Um, maybe there's a move towards cars that have more replaceable parts, um, so they can last longer. Not not just things like EVs. Um, and I think that's when life for all of us becomes a lot more interesting. Actually, you know, using our imagination to solve problems in a more profound way.
1: And and do you think? I feel like awareness of the issues have been really heightened in the past like, year, particular probably probably a bit longer. Um, but do you think going into I know the UK announced today we're technically in a recession, and but the challenges to the economy. Do you think companies might deprioritize some of these initiatives, or, or actually, is that just that's also entirely wrong? You should get to the heart of the issues, which might be at a product level. Like, how do you think it, the thoughts around sustainability and the e- energy, uh, ironically generated this year, goes into next year?
0: Yeah, I think um, it, it's more likely that consumers give up on this. Um, You know, it has been well known that sustainable products do really well in times when the economy is going great. And then immediately people cut back on things like that. Or at least that's how it's been in the past. Um, It may be different this time because there seems to be a very different energy around this. Um, And in particular, sort of young people seem to have been very much programmed with a different way of thinking about things. You know, the rise of sort of veganism and vegetarianism in in young people is quite remarkable. so it's very hard to know. I think um, I think a lot of it depends on the media environment and the regulatory environment and the political environment. And I think at the moment companies get in significant trouble for behaving recklessly in this way. Um, and it you know how they sort of behave in the future will depend on their perception of how that behaviour will be covered, and if the media moves on to the economy or you know, immigrants or some other sort of problem du jour, um, then probably companies will slowly behave differently and badly. But there are a lot of movements in place. I mean, I was talking to a lot of asset managers the other day, and, you know, the entire sort of infrastructure of asset investing has been changed because of European regulation about um, ESG and so on. Um, so it, it's probably a, a question of how significant regulations and reputations are in this regard in the future.
1: Yeah. And I was talking to somebody who works at a, a large bank in the US and they were raising money for ESG fund. And they were saying they had about a $2 billion opportunity in front of them and they could only raise about a hundred million. And it's because mm-hmm. these these sort of like uh, investors still need to provide returns and they haven't quite shifted their mindset to that, you know, people profit planet. They haven't quite got their the head out of the numbers on the spreadsheet. And and some of these initiatives take a bit longer. So I actually actually agree. Maybe there has to be like more regulation and penalties to companies that don't do enough for people to, to particularly some of the investment community to sort of change their minds on it, I guess.
0: Yeah, it's it's very hard as well, because um, you know, the idea that a company can be good or bad or good at this and bad at that, it's it's all so complicated. Mm. You know, if a company is um the most sort of environmentally righteous company around, but then treats people like shit. You know, how much does that sort of uh, alter how we perceive their um, sort of goodness? Um, it's all very messy, but deeply mm-hmm. fascinating.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. Definitely one to see, uh, to, <laughs> to follow with interest next year for sure. Um, then the final one in this section. So, you just sort of touching on some sort of the ways of working, um, you said, um, feel like working from home is one of these shifts that has a tipping point. It's not being held by, by tech, but by culture, especially trust. So in your opinion, how do you sort of see the future of like, work from home hybrid office? Like, what are your thoughts on that? Um, I mean, firstly, we have to be aware that people
0: have very different roles in very different industries. Um, and there are some industries, you know, software development would be an obvious one, where actually the, the benefits of working together are, are, are not that significant. Um, then there are others like, you know, architecture or structural engineering, where actually you really do need to sit in a room quite often or go to sites and stuff. Um, so I think slowly over time, we're, we're beginning to learn what's appropriate for each industry and each role. Um, I think um, the trust thing I find quite interesting. I mean, I, I've always trusted everyone that's on my team um, and they've never given me a reason to not trust them. And it seems to pay back um, enormously. Um we, we probably need to do a lot more thinking about what's really going on. Um, I think there are some elements that managers, um, if we're honest, they, they get their ego fed slightly by, by being part of a big team and sort of seeing people that they employ. Um, I think power comes from um, having people and having people that support you. Um, so often their incentives are quite different and more complex than we might realize. Um, I also think at the same time, I think a lot of people are actually kidding themselves about how productive they're really being. Um, I think a lot of people have sort of gone back to quite basic ideas of what their job is. And a lot of people have become quite sort of small almost. um, And they feel like it's their job to reply to emails quickly. It's their job to be on calls. and actually, it's not their job to do that. that, that that's um, that's a part of their job that makes their job. Um, it's the sort of foundation of their job. But their job is actually really above and beyond that. And I don't mean with with by spending more time. I just mean by expanding the the sort of uh, the, the the way you perceive what your job is to be. Um, so I think I think the next year is going to be really tricky. Actually. Um, I think especially with things like the recession, I think a lot of people are gonna feel paranoid and go into the office even when they, they don't need to. I think there's gonna be a lot of resentment between different types of people. Um, there's gonna be this sort of sense of the, the superstar who has sort of moved to the Orkney Islands and doesn't feel the need to come back in and they think they're so good that they won't get fired. Um, I think it's gonna be really hard. Um, and I think we may come around to the idea that the way that we worked in 2019 um, was not done because we didn't know that Zoom existed. And it wasn't done because we didn't know that we work or um, home offices were a thing or home printers. Um, it's because we tend to work in paradigms. Um, and the paradigm where most people try to be around most other people most of the time um, actually worked pretty well. Um, the paradigm where you're forced to work from home and no one comes into the office also works quite well but the moment you're between those you know that's when jealousy comes in that's when rumors start that's when um a sense of sort of aggravation kicks in um so i think how we manage that process is going to be really important
1: yeah i think definitely the times have changed so much where i hear stories for some from other companies where someone couldn't come in because they couldn't get a dog sitter and someone else <laughs> someone else said that the train was too expensive and it's so sort of like these weren't these weren't issues coming to the office before you now realise there's you know this um, sort of you can work in this other way. Um, and I actually think Every person within a business is different, different incentives, like different personalities. And for managers and companies, it's very hard to get everyone to to, to appeal to everyone's different incentives, um, like paying for a dog sitter or giving someone a bit more money for trains or um, or maybe someone has to finish early on Thursday to pick up their kids, which you know they maybe before they find babysitters. There's so many variables. It's it's I still think this this is working its way through. And I mean, for us as a company, we moved to, we removed fixed hours. So now the team can work whatever hours they want in the week. And uh, and what's actually happened is they're doing what they normally used to do, which <laughs> is <just> surprising. <laughs> a bit more flexibility in start and end times, but no one's yeah. doing two hours a day. <laughs> so yeah. no, one's, no one's doing fifty. So it's um uh yeah, it's I think we I think companies are still trying to work out how to, you know, if, if the goal of a company is to create as much value from an employee and and that comes from not just working them like a sweatshop to supporting them, how do you best do that? And that's quite individual, it's, it's quite difficult and it's still I still think it's working its way through. So the second to final question, um, most of the listeners today are within the ad industry. What do you think is the one thing they should be thinking about going into next year from the ad industry? Um, I might say two things here, actually.
0: Um, The first, I think most people in their careers sort of feel like it's their job to sort of manage the ascent. You know, people talk a lot about the sort of corporate ladder. I think not in a sort of pessimistic way, but I think we must be honest about the fact that, you know, if you're over 40 or 45, um, you know, there are not a lot of jobs out there. um, And therefore sort of managing the decline or managing the transition to a different thing is probably something that people should give a lot more time to. And I don't mean that in a sort of pessimistic 2023 way, because I think the year will actually work out pretty pretty good for a lot of people. Um, But it always seems suitable to be thinking um you know what happens beyond this what's um not that i've ever done this but what's your sort of five or ten year plan um and then act accordingly because getting a nice big promotion soon is nice but actually what you're doing when you're 50 60 65 is also going to be really important um in a way that sort of led me on to thing two which is um you know i think everyone should try and have a bit of a side hustle Um, not so much for earning, but just because you learn a lot. You know, have a little thing where you, um, I don't know, try and sell stuff that you buy from Alibaba and you make a direct-to-consumer website and you buy ads on Facebook. You'll probably make no money at all, but you'll learn a lot from the process. Um, You know, try and get involved with local politics. Um, Try and, you know, write a book, um, start a new sort of video series. You know, do, do anything that gives you a sense of sort of width um, because it's amazing what you can learn from that process, and how much more um, seriously people will will take you. Actually, we've got a third one just because I've thought about it. Um, we, we should be much more involved with the money side as well. You know, most people working on most clients, if they had to um, read like an S one filing or read an annual report, wouldn't really know what's going on. You know, we, we tend to assume that marketing and advertising is the most important thing that a company does, but actually, quite often it's it's very peripheral. Um, and by understanding the broader context in which we're working um, and understanding the kind of conversations that clients will be having um, when they're not talking to us. You know, that's actually when
1: we can be really excellent at our jobs. Great. There are Definitely three, three great tips. Um, thanks, Tom, for today. We've covered so much ground, different topics. Great to get your thoughts on all of it. Uh, just finally, if people want to find out more from you, where's the best place to find you?
0: um probably two places and one i've got my own website i think it's um www.tgoodwin.me um and that's loads of stuff about me there um and then also i'm quite lively on linkedin as well uh, i'm not sure what my profile is i think it's tom f goodwin but if you type in tom
1: goodwin you'll probably find it um yeah so those are the, the best places amazing great thanks tom for being guest the guest in our pod really appreciate it perfect thanks wayne thanks for your time well, that's it for season two of The AdPod. Thank you very much for listening to all the episodes this year. The comments that I get have been incredible and I always take any feedback on board. So please do feel free to share your thoughts. You'll be able to find me on LinkedIn because I am the only one, unfortunate with the name Wayne Bodwell in the world. Um, Lots more to come from The AdPod next year. We'll, we will be doing a season three and it's highly likely there's going to be a Christmas special before then. But until then, I hope you stay safe and I'll see you soon.